So as I was saying, Revelation chapter 19 is where we will be tonight. And we are continuing here in the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now in what is the sixth cycle of visions that the Apostle John received. And really we're coming up on the end of this sixth cycle. There's seven total cycles and we're coming up now on the end of this sixth cycle of visions. Now, just one more section after tonight, and then with chapter 20, all the way to the end of the book, that'll contain the seventh cycle of the book. And so, as we get nearer and nearer to the end of this book, John begins to reveal more and more about the future. I'm so sorry, Mia. I am so sorry. (laughs) But anyway, I was saying, as, as we get closer now to the end of the book, there's only... Uh, three more chapters after we finish 19. John is revealing more and more about the future. What was future for him and his original audience? And what is future for us as well? And so remember, we have been dealing, what we have been dealing with in this sixth cycle of visions, which began back in chapter 17, was a special emphasis on what is called Babylon, the great prostitute. Babylon as she was active in John's day as well as in our day, but also with an emphasis, a special emphasis on her judgment and especially that coming final judgment. If you remember, 17.1 started out introducing Babylon and saying that she was under judgment. And if you remember, um, she is symbolic of the powers and the seductions of the world that seek to entice believers and pull people into worship of the beast. This character that she was riding on in chapter 17 who was empowered by that red dragon that is Satan, a representative of Satan. So if we put all that together, a revelation has been showing us how Christians have an enemy in this age that we live in, this age in between the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus. The satanically empowered beasts and the false prophets, which are represented by governments opposed to Christ, false religions and secular ideologies that are in a way a form of religion, they are all enemies of the faith, enemies of God, and therefore enemies of the children of God as well, the enemies of the children of the woman of chapter 12, which is the church. And we see this today even with the sort of language that we see employed by the state and those who are deceived with, like, for example, abortion and the transgenderism uh, as an example. We see it in perversions of Christianity and every false way. But it's been this way for millennia now. The Roman Empire in John's day was Babylon, and there have been Babylons since then as well, who were all typological and representative of the final Antichrist system that will be active up up until the time of Christ's return. And judgments have and will continue to come upon the world by the hand of God, which are meant to display the righteous judgment of God against his enemies. And the church, living in this world, but not of this world, and nevertheless, it will be impacted by these judgments. She goes through tribulation, and sometimes even persecution, and even persecution that leads to death, according to God's sovereign will. But Christ will keep his bride through it all. Though our bodies may be harmed, as we just sang in that wonderful hymn, our soul they cannot take from us. Uh, Christ is building his kingdom. And the sixth cycle has been showing us Babylon, 
that though she may seem enticing, though she has success in drawing men away from God and his reign and his love, though it seems as though Babylon has the upper hand from time to time in different cultures and consider ours presently, uh, the hope that we have in light of all these things, despite appearances, is that Babylon will meet a final end. And it's not good. It well, it's good in the sense that God and his people are vindicated and his righteousness and veracity, truthfulness will be on display. And the Lord Jesus will have fulfilled his promise at that time to usher in the eternal age. But for those not united to Christ and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb by Christ, it is not good. It is a time of judgment and a time of death. And so there is a general kindness from God communicated to us through these things in this book. In God's grace, people may hear of these truths and flee from Babylon. They may come out of her, as 18.4 instructed us to do, and not partake of her sins and her plagues. You remember from that last time, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. The call is to rest in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to be reconciled unto God. Because a day is coming when Babylon will be judged. And the saints, on that same day, the saints will worship. They will worship in light of what we may call a funeral, and then also a marriage. And that's primarily what we have in our text tonight. So let's read the chapter, and then we'll ask the Lord for help in prayer. This is Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. God's Word says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and the glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her grows up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. In the King James Version, the Lord our God omnipotent reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell down and fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, to you be all glory, honor, and praise. And we know, Lord, that you are sovereign and that you are bringing about your will. And so we ask that in that you would find it pleasing to soften our hearts this evening and give us ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, that as we approach your word, we may do so humbly, seeking to be taught of you knowing that Jesus is the the spirit of prophecy. So we pray that you would exalt Christ 
here in us and among us, and that you would bring us to confessing your greatness all the more. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. So, you know, uh, it is necessary for us sometimes to be dualistic. That's not always a good thing, uh, because, of course, gray areas exist. Nuance is demanded from time to time. But also, there is a place for us to see things as black and white. Uh, The scriptures do this many times. You know, there are sheeps and goats. There are elect and reprobate, wheat and chaff, the narrow and the wide way, in or out. And when it comes to worship, we recognize that everyone actually worships. Everyone does. We were created to do this. Everyone is, as the catechism reminds us, uh, created for it. A man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when we think of worship, we should see a distinction there as well. One thing that we can do when we are wanting to affirm the dualities, that is, when we want to distinguish the people of God from those who are of the world, is that those who belong to God worship God. Whereas those who belong to the world will worship the things of the world. All people worship. Even the most God-hating, militant atheist worships. The atheist, though he may deny God's existence, has a God of his own. Someone or something owns his heart. He lives or she lives for something. He or she finds pleasure and satisfaction somewhere. There's some source of hope for them. Even the atheist worships as he looks to this thing or that thing and says, you know, this is of supreme worth. The secularist worships. False religions are, of course, factories of false worship. The question is not, do we worship? Because we all do. Instead, the question is, do we worship as we are meant to? Do we worship that which is truly worth, worthy of worship? And do we worship the, or is the object of our worship dictating to us how it is that we worship, or do we just make it up? Now, we've commented before that the book of Revelation is all about worship. When we began to study this book over a year ago now, what most people probably assumed was that the book was just about the future, things that would happen in the future. But what we have found is that although this book does reveal some things about the future, it really is a book about our lives now, and it, and it tells us how it is that we are blessed for hearing it and reading it and keeping it. And all of those things inform our worship of God. It informs how we live our lives, which are meant to be lives of worship unto the Lord. It reveals, this book, the work of God in this age. It reveals what the reality of things are despite appearances. And in this, it urges the reader and the hearer to worship aright, uh, to worship not the things of this world, but the God who made the world. And, and it is very clear in that. And to also have us to worship the Christ, who is the God-man and our Redeemer. Really, those are our two options when it comes down to it. Either we will worship the things of this world and the way of the things of this world, Or we will worship the God who made the world and all things therein and rejoice then in what he accomplishes and what he's doing. Uh, That we will worship is unavoidable. 
to worship is to be human, and to be human is to worship. The question is, is will we rightly worship our creator, or will, will we wrongly give worship to something in his creation? Some people, of course, worship their possessions. Some worship entertainment. Some worship their food or their drink. Some worship other people and the relationships that they have with them. Some would worship sex, power, money, fame. Some worship demons. Some worship gods that they've made up for themselves. Maybe they've even crafted little statues out of, out of wood or, or gold. Uh, I, some worship ideas that they have about God. Not ideas about God that come from God, but ideas that they have about God that they or somebody else made up based upon human reason. And all of these types of things and more are, are really the, the tricks of Babylon. And it's effective. Make no mistake about that. Revelation has been showing us this. But then also, we see in Revelation that those who belong to God worship God as he has revealed himself to us in history through his Son and by his Word. And how that was supposed to culminate in Christ even. Hebrews 1 reads, Long ago at many times, and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created all things. Well, it is that wholehearted and faithful worship of this God that the book of Revelation is compelling us to engage in. We are here, created to worship this God, the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. For all that he does, he is the God who speaks. He has given us his word. He has graciously revealed himself to us. We are to worship this God, not the world and the things of the world, not Babylon and what she offers, but the one true God through faith in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, who because of our sin and separation from God has been graciously given to us as the only mediator between God and man. So, what or whom do you worship? Why do you worship? To whom or to what or to, and why do you look and say to this thing or that thing that this is of supreme worth and it is worthy of my devotion, my trust, my heart, and my very life? We need, we're meant to consider those sorts of questions in our text for tonight. Uh, three main things that I want to draw out from the passage. Number one, the need to worship God. Number two, worship in light of a funeral. And number three, worship in light of a marriage. So first of all, notice how we are in seven different times in this passage urged to give worship to God. First, uh, we see this in giving of four hallelujah statements. The word hallelujah appears four times in this passage. In verse 1, a great multitude in heaven is heard by John crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In verse 3, they, they cry out once again saying, Hallelujah. In verse 4, it's the 24 elders and the four living creatures who fall down and worship God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And then in verse 6, John again hears the voice of the multitude. And he says that it's like a, the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah. 
For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. The Lord God omnipotent reigns. The word hallelujah here is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew compound word, which means literally praise Yahweh. Or if you put it all in English, it means praise the Lord. So when you say hallelujah, what you're really doing, in fact, is you're speaking Hebrew. And you're, you're urging the praise of Yahweh in saying it. Praise the Lord is what hallelujah means. And you may be aware of the classic Handel's Messiah. The most famous oration of it is a very long uh, production, worth your time though. Uh, but the most famous oration in it is the hallelujah chorus, which Handel's inspiration for that came from this chapter. But interestingly... This is the only place in the New Testament that we find this transliteration of the Hebrew praise, hallelujah. It's used in the Old Testament a number of times, but it's only here in chapter 19 of Revelation in, the New, in all of the New Testament. Um, <clears throat> most notably in the Old Testament, perhaps, it's used in Psalm 148. So if you, buy, if you have your Bible with you, you could turn there to see this. We've got Psalm 148. The first and the last word of that psalm in the Hebrew are hallelujah. And and then throughout the psalm, the repeated refrain is, of course, praise the Lord. So let's just read verse, the first five verses briefly. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, or in other words, hallelujah, hallelujah from heavens, from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Hallelujah. Just praise him would be hallelujah. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Psalm 148 and Revelation 19, 1 through 10 share this in common. Both are urging praise of Yahweh using this refrain, hallelujah. It's, it's beautiful. The, the fifth urge to praise God we see back in Revelation 19.5. And there we read, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, small and great. Presumably one of the voices from the great multitude from which other places in, in Revelation we would understand to be the collective voice of the saints, perhaps even angels as well. Some commentators see that as as Jesus may be saying that, although I'm not really convinced of that personally. Sixth, we should consider verse 7 where it says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. And then seventhly and lastly in verse 10, we read John's words, then I fell down at this, the angel's feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that for I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus Worship God. Well, do you see then that the objective of this passage from beginning to end is to urge the worship of the one true God, of Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Lord Most High, the Lord Omnipotent. We've noticed before here in Revelation that there are these patterns of seven. Sometimes they're explicit, like with the seven bowls or the seven trumpets. Other times implicit, like with the seven cycles, or here with the call to worship Yahweh. But it's there, speaking of perfection, a a complete worship in this context. 
And do you see how easy it is at the same time for our worship to be misdirected? God must be worshipped for who he is and for what he has done. Uh, Even though that is true, we see the Apostle John perhaps being overwhelmed with the vision that he saw. He ends up bowing down before an angel, and that brings him a swift and firm rebuke. You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God was the instruction of the angel. You see, God and God alone is the only one who is worthy of worship. Uh, Nothing in all of creation, not even holy and righteous angels, are worthy to receive praise because they are creatures and not the creator. Angels and men, though a different species, share much in common. Both are volitional creatures, meaning that angels and humans both have a will with a rational capacity, but we're both made for the service of God. But even not they, holy as they may be, are to be worshipped. God only is to be worshipped. So the distinction when it comes to worship and what do we worship is not between holy things and sinful things. It's not as the distinction isn't between spiritual and physical things. Uh, the distinction is between creator and creature. And that is useful in determining who is worthy to receive worship. Because there is only one creator. Uh, who, there's only one, Yahweh, who's worthy to receive worship from his creation, Father, Son, and Spirit. Psalm 148 closes for the last <coughs> four verses, verse, beginning at verse 11 then. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, for all the saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord, or in other words, hallelujah. If you are alive today, which you know anyone who ever hears this, of course, is, you owe to God worship because he is your maker. And to refrain, to withhold, to not give unto God the worship that he so rightly deserves in the way that he instructs, for whatever reason it is, worse yet, to take the worship that he deserves and give it to another is a, is a most terrible thing. I have a hard time even finding the right words to describe what that is like. It is condemnation. A condemnation that is being expressed when one does that. And so perhaps maybe the, the fifth commandment will be helpful for us in thinking of how bad this is. Help us to see the foolishness and sin of failing to worship Yahweh. Remember the fifth commandment, of course. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Well, the comparison would be that of a child who, having been brought into this world by his parents and having been cared for by them, sheltered, clothed, fed, loved, discipled, protected, given wisdom and counsel, then the child goes on to dishonor them. He cares little for them. He, when he does speak to them, he speaks rudely to them. When he speaks to others about them, 
He's speaking rudely of them as well. He only calls when he wants something. His, his love he will not give to them, but he'll gladly give it to those who are unworthy. He responds to his parents' love with hatred, but those who have not true love for him, those he ends up loving. Essentially, this son, having been shown love, responds by spitting in his parents' face. And a son like that, well, it won't go well for him. Now, there are hardly words to describe just how terrible that is, but it is far worse for a creature to do that to his creator. And yet... This is what all men do in their natural state apart from the grace of God. Whoever believes in him is is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in the Son of God is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God is what John says elsewhere. They are condemned. They are in one way or another spitting in the face of their Creator. They repay his goodness with hatred his kindness with contempt, his generosity with neglect, his patience with stubborn pride and disdain. And friends, if you are a worshiper of God today and not like that person I just described, do not forget that that is what you once were though. But God has been merciful to you. He determined that before the creation to bring you to himself. And though you were a child of wrath, He has made you his beloved child. And he did that all through the shed blood of Christ who paid for the sins of his people. He did this by calling you to faith through his word and spirit. When God's word called out to you to trust in Jesus, when God called you to say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, you responded to that call with a yes and amen. Not because you were by nature one who was a worshiper of God, but because God had been gracious to you. Seven times in this passage, we are urged to worship God. It is those predestined, called, and justified who have, will, and do worship God. Next, notice how this passage stands in contrast to the preceding one. Uh, the, The worship is taking place in light of the context of a funeral. Chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, and chapter 19 share this in common. They, they both describe responses to the judgment of Babylon. And remember what the way that the earth dwellers responded. That's the way that Revelation describes those who are the enemies of God contrasted with those who are sons and daughters, uh, the citizens of heaven, earth dwellers. Well, we, if you remember, they wept and they mourned over Babylon's judgment. They threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her, her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. That was verse 19. But even in chapter 18, we heard a call for a different response. In verse 20, the, the last, or almost near the last verse, verse 20, 24 verses in chapter 18, verse 20 reads, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Well, that's precisely what we have happening in chapter 19. Here, heaven responds to the call of 1820 and rejoices, saying, after this, that is, after the judgment of Babylon, 
I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! The salvation and glory of power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth and her, and with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Again, verse 1 and 2. <clears throat> you see, God will be worshipped in the end for the glory of his righteous judgments. What he has judged is true and right. They are just. And this judgment of Babylon, it is their just reward for their transgression. In verse 4, the 24 elders and the, and the four living creatures, uh, calling us back, by the way, if you remember, to chapters 4 and 5, if these, this grouping is representative of all the saved and all of creation. No one is left out. No one is too busy for to preoccupied with other things. And what we, what we read here in 19 is that they fall down and worship Yahweh who is seated on his throne. There is humility in them. Humility that is true of all worshipers, of all true worshipers. In Handel's Messiah, it's the tradition that the audience stands during the whole hallelujah chorus. But here, in light of the mercy of the, that the people of God have received, when they know and understand that they earned, they merited, they deserved judgment, judgment along with Babylon, here they fall down and they worship God. We'll be among those people, those who have faith. The two responses to the judgment of Babylon could not be more different. But this only further shows us how different the kingdom of God is from the kingdom of this world. These two kingdoms, they, they stand in stark contrast to one another. The citizens of these kingdoms value entirely different things. So what causes one to weep and mourn causes the other to shout for joy and to give glory for God and to fall down and worship before him. The other group, those who are weeping and mourning, they'll fall down, but they'll fall down pleading for mountains to fall upon them, is what we read back in chapter uh, 16. Babylon will be destroyed, friends. The smoke of her goes up forever and ever, verse 3. And one day, Babylon will be punished finally and forever. Punishment is eternal. Hell is eternal. And if this is where your treasure is, if your treasure is in the world, you will be found weeping in the end. But the kingdom of heaven is eternal as well. And God is everlasting and unchanging. If your treasure is stored up with him, in the end, there will be much rejoicing. And lastly, notice the reasons given for the, wor for the worship of God. It's all in light as well of a, as, of a marriage, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the point is, is that God will be worshipped in the end, ultimately for the salvation that he has provided for us. Verse 6 to 8. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude. Will there be few that are saved? Well, perhaps in contrast to how many are lost. But what we read here is that he hears the voice of a great multitude. There's many, many that are saved. More than can be counted. This is like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So the bride of Christ, uh, the, the guests at this marriage supper, 
the groomsman, of course, is Christ. The bride of Christ is the church. Remember Ephesians 5 and the instruction we have there. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, as he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's 25 through 32. So Christ shed his blood, not for the world, but for his church. He gave himself up for her. He died for his bride. That is to say, all of the elect, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That we would all be ready, perfectly prepared, that is, for what is being spoken of here in chapter 19, this marriage supper of the Lamb. Here in Revelation 19, we have symbolized the consummation of these things where Christ and his bride do enjoy their wedding feast. This hasn't happened yet. We anticipate this day. This will happen at the end of time when the Lord returns for his betrothed and judges all of her enemies. And of course, none will be missed in that. All the elect will have been drawn in for this event and united to Christ. When the, but what's happening now is we are being prepared for this. Uh, when Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he spoke in this way, saying, and this is 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 2, so he says, I, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. When, when Paul preached the gospel and saw men and women come to faith in Christ, he saw them then as betrothed to Christ. His objective in teaching the church was to prepare the church for the coming day, this wedding day, so that they may be presented to Christ as a pure and spotless bride. And notice the two different perspectives that are given to us side by side here in this closing portion of this text. There's both the active sense and the passive sense of what goes on in that preparing. It's active so that we might have a true assurance and good testimony. And it's passive, passive so that we might have a true confidence and rest in Christ. So first we're told at the end of verse 7 that his bride has made herself ready. Well, this emphasizes the responsibility that we have to persevere in the faith, to pursue Christian virtues, and to confirm your calling and election, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 2, uh, the first chapter. But to protect us from thinking that we can in any way save ourselves or think that we contribute to our salvation, we're told in verse 8 that it was, quote, granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deed of the saints. You see, we, we come to faith because God has granted it. We 
persevere in Christ because God has granted it. We will be able to stand before God and Christ on that last day without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, not because we have provided this clothing for ourselves, but because God has provided it for you in Christ Jesus. Notice this, even the good deeds, even the good deeds that we do, the active portion, which speaks to our testimony and our personal assurance, because obviously, right, if you are living in abject sin, should you have assurance of the faith? No, of course not. But, but notice even what it says about that. It says, those are even granted to us. The fine linen, we read, are the righteous deeds of the saints. So even God is, is, is behind that. And indeed, we do receive the forgiveness of sin by Christ's life, death, and resurrection through the faith that he gives to us. And that, that faith has been granted to us by God through grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And our, and our good works, actually, we may not boast in those either. They're given to us by God as well. Just keep reading after verse 9, verse 10 in Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, friends, what should we do in response to the things we've heard? What does Revelation 19, 1 through 10 compel us to do? Worship God. Worship God. Amen. Let us worship God. Individually, may he have your heart, trust in him, hope in him, find your joy in him, give him glory with your speech. Pray to him, give thanks to him, rejoice in all things, tell of his goodness and lordship, obey him in all that you do, put to death the sin that remains in you, live a life of repentance, recite the gospel to yourself daily, have his word as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. In families, honor your father and mother, don't provoke children to wrath, Love your siblings and relatives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wife. Cherish and prioritize worship in the home, morning and evening, corporately with the church. Keep the Lord's Day Sabbath rest. Don't neglect the assembling of yourselves. Engage in the means of grace from the heart of faith. Let us worship Him through faith in Jesus the Christ. Because there's no other way to worship him in all categories. These things and others like them, these acts of worship, they amount to that fine linen, bright and pure, that clothes us. Lives of worship. Worship that God who has changed you and saved you and who guides us in all truth for his own glory. And friends, it is our privilege and it is our good to embrace that kind of worship. Let's pray. Holy God, we need you greatly, Lord. You are infinite, almighty, sovereign. There is none like you, Yahweh. You are worthy of honor, praise, and worship. And we know, Lord, that our worship of you, even on the very best days, falls short of all that you are worth. And so we pray, Lord, that you would 
strengthen us and give us grace that we may worship you aright, that you would help us to not be creative in seeking to worship you, Lord, but to be simple and humble and to follow the instruction in your word as to worshiping you, Lord, for you know yourself much better than we know you, and and we want to worship you the way that you say you are to be worshiped. So help us, please, Lord. Help us to see the deceptions and the tricks of Babylon, and when our flesh is enticed by them, Lord, we ask that you remind us of Babylon's end, and that you would give us grace so that we might continue to rest in Christ, for we know that is our only hope. May you be exalted and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.